This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Obviously, there are countervailing forces on all the, these levels. And I think an important reason to stress the local recovery is so that the poison of national polarization doesn't infect and seep down to what is happening state by state and region by region. Some of that is going on. Some of the seeping down and poison, I think, needs to be rebuffed. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. If you're into history, politics, flying or travel, or all of the above, then I have a real treat for you today. My guest is award-winning writer and longtime correspondent for The Atlantic, James Fallows. Jim has had an adventurous globe-spanning life, traveling widely and living in Japan, Malaysia and China for many years. He actually set out to be a doctor and stumbled into writing thanks to a part-time college job writing advertising copy. Lucky for us. Early in his career, he was President Carter's first speechwriter. He has since gone on to write 11 books and countless magazine articles on a remarkably wide range of topics. His stories will offer you many tips on effective writing and communications, and powerful insights on the weight of being the other, as he puts it. I'm sure you'll be amused by his anecdotes about politicians, from Jimmy Carter and Ralph Nader to Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, and surprised to learn about the national importance of brew pubs in the United States, a topic he examines in depth in his latest book, Our Towns, which he co-authored with his wife, Deb. So let's go explore the world with Jim Fallows. Jim, welcome to the podcast. So delightful to be talking with you. Oh, Kathy, it's an honor to have a chance to talk with you again, as we've done in the past. Yes, we had a great fun time doing a dual gig for the Nevada medal ceremony a couple of months ago, which was quite wonderful. I was honored that the University of Nevada asked you and you agreed to be the interlocutor for that event. It was a wonderful event. And of course, one of us was receiving that medal, which was <laughs> you. And that was a great and deserved honor. Well, thank you. But now I get the fun of turning the tables and having a chance to talk more with you about your life and career uh, as someone who's adored many of your pieces in the Atlantic and your books. This is a real treat for me. So thank you so much. It's an honor for me. 
something I didn't know about you until fairly recently was that you grew up in Redlands. You were born back east, but ended up out in Redlands, which is in what's called the Inland Empire in and around the San Bernardino area in Southern California. Tell us a bit about that. What and why did you, who and what moved you and your family from Philadelphia to Redlands? And how old were you? And I'm curious what you remember of the place and the environment around you at Redlands back in in those early years. Thanks for asking that. It was instrumentally my parents, of course, who moved me and my little siblings uh, to Redlands at, at that, that time. More generally, it was the mid 20th century upheaval of war and uh, relocation through America that got our family there. My parents were both from non-college backgrounds in Philadelphia. Um, my mom had a very rough upbringing because her father's business was destroyed in the Depression and her father himself died. My dad graduated from high school in 1943. And the choice he had after high school was that he do what he wanted to do, to do, which was to become a Marine Corps pilot. Or did he do what the U.S. military decided he should do, which is to go into the V-12 program, which was the way in which the Navy was producing doctors, medical doctors, at a uh. very fast clip and have them for naval service. So my dad went for a year and a half to college at a place called um, Ursinus College in Collegeville, PA, then was the first person from that school and maybe the last to, to go to Harvard Medical School after that. Then he was a, a Navy doctor for essentially through the Korean War years when I and my two immediate siblings were, were born. And so with that little family, we lived in Mississippi. I was in Jackson, Mississippi as a child. We lived in Rockville, Maryland. We lived in Boston and we lived in San Diego. And so my dad said, when I am out of the Navy, I am coming away from the winter. <laughs> I'm going ah. to, and so when he was released from the Navy in 1954, when I was four about to turn five, we moved to Redlands. He, had, he was looking for a place that had a small clinic where he could set up a medical practice. And he, there was one that was then very small, has, has since grown. And so all of my, essentially my conscious memory is of small town, inland Southern California, where most people had come from someplace else. The Anglo people had mainly come from the Midwest or the South. Now, during the Dust Bowl or the Depression or through the military, the Latino people, who were about a little less than half the population, had mainly come after the Mexican Revolution. You know, it was not immediate migrants, but people in the early 1900s. And so you, it was a place that any of your listeners who remember the movie American Graffiti, uh, which was set in Central Valley, California, that was essentially the uh, the ambience in which uh, that I thought was uh, normal life through my my conscious childhood. So what powered Redlands back then in 1954? We came to California in 1958. So I have some Southern California memories from 50 miles or so to the north and west. Redlands, as you know, and, and not all the listeners might, it's about 70 miles inland from Los Angeles. It's just it's a place many people have driven through on their way to Palm Springs. And it has a very sort of proud sense of people drive through here, but actually we're our own community. And it was um, quite distinctive from its immediate neighbor of San Bernardino, which is a much larger, much more working class, much more up and down town. Uh, Redlands had been founded initially in the 1870s by some East Coast people from New York and Philadelphia who were sort of looking for either 
disease relief. You know, they were consumptives who were going to the dry uh. climate or else they were starting farms. Its main business was still orange growing when I was a kid. There was also a lot of spillover business from the then powerful Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino since closed. And my dad was part of a, a sort of growing business for the town as a professional edge of the desert. People, people from the Mojave Desert would come into Redland as sort of the nearest point of civilization for their medical care. So it was those parts of the um, economic base, plus a, a small private university, the University of Redlands. Wow. So you finished high school there, but did not go to the University of Redlands. You, you went all the way back east to Harvard in pretty frothy times, 1967, I think. Yeah. Why Harvard? Did you, did you already know you wanted to be a writer? What was your sense of, of Jim Fallow's path through life at that point? So you're, you're nice to ask. It was a real crapshoot and roll of, of the dice. So I had assumed that I was going to go either to Pomona College in Southern California, although technically not the Inland Empire because it's in Los Angeles County rather than San Bernardino County, or Berkeley, which I also applied to, or MIT, which I was I, I was interested in. And just out of the blue, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll try Harvard too. And so I got in there and it was, I thought, well, why not? I had never really been in my aware life on the East Coast before. In my high school class of maybe 800 kids, only a handful of us went even east of the Mississippi, was mainly not going to college or in California. And so it was a real change on about 20 zillion different fronts. The most obvious ones, it, I had not lived through a Boston winter before. And my reaction <laughs> was a shocker. February or March was, yeah, people do this twice. <laughs> you know, they, they've, they've seen it and they, and they, they come stay? back. That was one... <laughs> And, and I had never known people from private schools before. Now, private schools in Redlands were for kids who had problems, you know, and, or there were uh, military schools and there was a Catholic school, but not Exeter, Andover, all these the sorts of schools. places, which uh, the prep schools where in those days, probably a third of the freshman class at, at Harvard was these, these prep school kids, many of them long-term generational legacies, et cetera. I think that the Exeter sent something like 20 people to my class of 1,200 at, at, at Harvard. So that was uh, startling. It was a shift of a seismic change in politics for the U.S. in that the fall of 1966, when I began at Harvard, was when things started to get much worse in Vietnam. And, and you know, the, the next four years when I was in uh, in college uh, included, you know, 1968, still the nadir of modern life, et cetera. Um, I still thought that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a small town doctor like my dad. I, through my first year in college, I was taking largely chemistry and biology courses, but to make money on the side, I worked as an ad salesman for the student newspaper, The Crimson. And I got sort of more and more involved in that. And there's a whole sequence I won't bother you with involving the burning down of the Harvard Economics Department, where I ended up writing my first newspaper story and thought, uh, you know, th this is fun. So by the end of those four years, I ended up being the, the editor of The Crimson. It was a six day a week, 24 to 36 page paper. A lot of the people I worked with then have stayed in journalism and have been known figures ever since. And so I thought, this is really fun and I should give this a try in later life. But but I, I started out wanting to be a doctor. And as you well know, 
things happen and change. Yeah. So it was not organic chemistry that pushed you into journalism. It was actually a pull of the journalistic experience itself. Yes. And although I will say that, as you know, getting out of an organic chemistry lab at 5 p.m. on a December day in Boston, where it seemed like 40 below zero and having to walk back to the dorm, I thought, huh, this, <laughs> this is <getting laughs> a better old. way to live. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You sort of quickly moved past the point that these were the nadir years of civic life in America in, in many respects. Set a little more of the context again for readers who are younger than you and I and didn't live through that. Yes. So I think it's worth um, people whose conscious memory is, is in the 21st century of America, which is, you know, a very, I think the median age of Americans is probably now somewhere in the late 30s. So it's fair that, that the George W. Bush, 9-11, Iraq War, Obama, Trump era sort of dominate memory for, for most people in the country now. It's also the case that the late, the 60s as a whole had their positive and negative elements. The late 60s were mainly traumatic. And I will single out the year of 1968, just because I can remember almost every week week of that year. And it's worth recognizing how portentous it was. It was in February of that year that there was the so-called Tet Offensive in South Vietnam, which was in retrospect was the time when essentially mainstream U.S. thought this is not going to work, it's not worth going on. Walter Cronkite, who was then you know, the dominant TV anchor, gave his, uh, you know, this, this is not working speech on, on CBS News. I believe it was in early April of 1968 that Martin Luther King was murdered, which was you know a horrific event in national life and and rightly provoked riots across the country. There had been racial violence, by which I mean protests and law enforcement shooting mainly black people over the previous couple of years. But 1968, it stepped up to a whole new level. Lyndon Johnson, around that same time, announced that he would not run for re-election, which was, again, this is a person who had spent his whole life preparing to be in power and he would not run for re-election. Bobby Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy were challenging him in the, the Democratic primary. And then Bobby Kennedy was murdered in June in California. And you had the Democratic Convention in 1968. Turned into riots. blew apart. Yeah, there were the riots in, in, uh, in Chicago. I was spent the summer of 1968 working on a civil rights newspaper in Alabama and Mississippi, helping people register to vote, which was uh, then, then a big issue. And it went on and right, on and on. on until the election with George Wallace. George Wallace is the last third party candidate to get any electoral votes. And he essentially, as I think his, his party was called the American Independent Party, but it was essentially the segregation party, carried a number of states in the, in the South. And then Richard Nixon was elected. And it was, there was still more trauma per day quotient in that year, I would, would submit, than, than any any since. You know, certainly before that, there was a civil war. One other point of historical reference that may be worth it is we become numbed with 600,000 plus deaths in the United States of COVID to large numbers of casualties. But before COVID, Vietnam was the time when every week, there were these tales of hundreds of Americans being killed in Vietnam, and of course, many thousands of Vietnamese. And there was a famous issue of Life magazine, then dominant around uh, at that time, which was devoted exclusively 
to pictures and bios of the Americans who died in Vietnam in one week. And it was, you know, hundreds of, of people. And that was something that, that had not been part of conscious experience for Americans. Well, in the graphic nature of the television news reports about Vietnam virtually every night, which if any such things happened during the Korean War, I was too young to remember them. But every single night, these searing, searing images. So, yeah, there was a full on active draft at that point. And uh, you had an experience with the draft that you later wrote about in a fabulous piece called Playing on a Movie Title. What did you do during the war, Daddy? You, you wrote a piece titled, What Did You Do in the Class War, Daddy? Tell us about your draft experience. Yes. So, so I was in you know, college from 1966 until 1970. It was in, in those days. So as a side point, one of my contentions in retrospect is that there had not been from, say, 1963 to 1969, the famed 2S deferment for the military draft. The draft was a males student deferment, of course, in those days, but it was a student deferment which you could get for four years in college, and then people could roll over more or less indefinitely through their um, eligible period in graduate school. And a lot of people, uh, you know, Dick Cheney famously was uh, doing this, Newt Gingrich and, and some others. But in 1968, the sort of graduate school rollover was removed as the appetite for more and more draftees got larger and larger. And in 1969, as Nixon came in, he made the crassly strategic shift to end the draft and move to a volunteer army. I put it that way because he did it because he thought that would reduce the pressure for Vietnam. If people were not being drafted in the, the same way, that would be get rid of the pressure valve. And they switched to a lottery system of who was going to be eligible or not. And so through the 1960s, I had started out as, you know, I started in college as a more or less, um, right-wing person, as most of my hometown had, had been and, and my family had been. By the end of the 60s, uh, by the end of my time there, it felt like just everything was going to hell. And the choice for most of my com peers was essentially, again, the men, because the women were not affected then, was do you formally resist the draft? Do you become a conscious, conscientious objector or do you find some way to get out of the draft? And I did the, the last of those. I was I had a legal but intentional way to be disqualified from service, which was I was too skinny. I've never been overweight, but I was really thin then. I've been on the lightweight crew as a marathon runner and all that. It required focus, but not, you know, struggle to to go below the theoretical draft minimum for my height. And so there was I described in this piece the knowledge that everybody in places like Harvard, but everybody in the country as a whole knew but didn't express in those days. And the scene was in May of 1970, when I was, um, I was, I was 20 years old then, turned 21 that summer, and was going for my draft physical at the Boston Navy Yard. And the draft physicals in those days, or at least the Navy Yard, they were done alphabetically by draft board. And so there was Alston, you know, which was a Boston suburb that came, and then you know Brighton or someplace, and then the Cambridge uh, board came. And the Cambridge board was one or two people who were Cambridge townies, and everybody else was a Harvard or MIT student who had been registered in Cambridge. And of the hundred or so people there from the Harvard and MIT contingents, almost everybody 
had asthma or a bad foot or too fat or too thin or high blood pressure or a bum knee or whatever, you know, all with, with doctor's letters. And, and then the next board after us, ours was Chelsea. And that was, of course, the white working class part of, of Boston uh, then and, and, and more or less now, where exact reverse proportions. The people who were excluded, there was something really wrong with them. You know, they actually were sick. And the, and the great majority of them were, were the draftees who were sent off or, uh, you know, approved as, as being one. I skipped over the part where in the, when the lottery came up, my number was near the top of the list. So, so uh, about two thirds of the people who had been drawn when the lottery was held in the Thanksgiving before this, uh, the lower two thirds of the people knew, okay, we're out of it. And there was um, the, the one third was was vulnerable. And so the the point, I, the reason I wrote about this a couple of years later of what did you do in the draft war, Daddy, is that everybody involved knew what was happening. The people in college, in graduate school, with doctor's letters, with privilege, with preparation, with support, to say, yeah, this is not for me. I'm not, not going to go. There were many people who volunteered, but people who wouldn't have chosen to go were drafted in a way that, that, that I, I think perverted everything about that time, about the decades of aftermath of the Vietnam War, that it was a class war in that way not for the first time in American history. The Civil War, of course, there were draft war riots and purchased exemptions, but it was so distinctly different from the World War II and, and, and Korean eras where essentially everybody, there were relatively so few people and relatively such a large um, need that, that essentially everybody was involved in national and military service in some way. So that was the, I wrote a piece in the, um, in the Washington Monthly where I worked in the early 70s saying, this is what I saw. This is what I did. Uh, having to do things over again, I should have just formally, uh, you know, the calculating thing would be to go into some like intelligence officer position or something. But I should have said, no, I like other people I knew, I will formally resist this. But that was my story. And it's something that needs to become more widely reckoned with. Interesting. You bagging around magazines for uh, a little while, and at the ripe old age of 27, if I did my arithmetic correctly, you're the chief speechwriter for President Carter in the first two years of his term. What was that pathway? How did that come about? So the pathway was another one of the reasons why I was um, thought I didn't want to end up in Vietnam. Apart from I, didn't, you know, was was didn't thought the war was just a hideous mistake. Is is also the the, the Christmas of my senior year in college. I'd, I'd got gotten a Rhodes scholarship, and so the alternative was going to to England to study, which which I I did. Um, my wife Deb and I, who I met on a blind date in college, we got married after the first year. We were there in Oxford. In those days, you couldn't be married in your first year, and many of our friends all got married in that first week after the first year ended, which as it happens was 50 years ago just now. So we just had our 50th anniversary. So I spent two years in there. Um, at the end of two years, I felt as if I recognized my Americanness and that I wanted to be back in the fray in the United States. There was a project that Ralph Nader, whom I'd worked for before and had written a book for, for before while in college, was revving up called the Congress Project in 1972. I went back there and worked on that that summer. I wrote a book with Mark Green and David Swick that sold 5 million copies and we got $500 a piece for it. Whoa. It was it was called Who Runs Congress. Ralph got the rest of the proceeds <laughs> for his 
organization. It may have been what kept him going through the 2000 election, et cetera. Anyhow, I, I thought, you know, I, I will try the writing world. I worked for this little magazine, The Washington Monthly, which was just starting up. And um, I'll tell you one other story from this. I succeeded a man named Taylor Branch who had been a staff writer for the magazine for its first two years. He was going off in 1972 to work in politics. And I would call him sometimes to ask him advice, you know, how, how, does, how do things work? And there'd be some other guy who answered the phone when I called Taylor, a guy with a Southern accent saying, you know, no, I don't see Taylor here. Can I help you? And that was Bill Clinton. Because <laughs> Bill Clinton and Taylor Branch together were running the Texas campaign for George McGovern. So that was my first uh, encounter with, with Bill Clinton. Then after I had worked for the Washington Monthly, Deb really, really wanted to get out of Washington and to pursue her own education in linguistics, which she'd studied in college. So we moved. The three choices for the best linguistic school in the country then were Stanford, MIT, and University of Texas at Austin. And we visited them all and loved Austin. So we then uh, were in Austin for a couple of years. I was working for the Texas Monthly. And out of the blue, I got a call from somebody who was working for Jimmy Carter when Carter was starting to catch on in early, in the early uh, 76 primary. He said, we need some more writers. Uh, you want to join on? So I thought I should do this once in my life. <laughs> I have nothing to lose at the moment, except a wife who we've just discovered was pregnant with our first child. But you know, <laughs> she Small can take potatoes. care of herself. Uh, and so I, I joined the campaign. I traveled around for four or five months in the plane with Carter during the campaign. At the end of the campaign, the guy who had been his head speechwriter left, then I had that job in the White House for a couple of years, for the first couple of years. Tell us about that job. How does, how does that job work? Or at least how did it work in the Carter White House? I think the, there are things that are true of any era and things that are distinctive to Carter. Things that are true of any era is a president puts out a tremendous tonnage of stuff that, that has to go out under a president's name all the time. Every almost every day of the calendar is some country's national day. You know, it's Botswana Day or it's, you know, you know, Andorra Day or whatever. I mean, you need to have a statement from the president. There's every disease has its own week. And so there's then there are budget messages and all kinds of things that have to somebody has to write and somebody has to see. So the uh, uh, take care of press release, the White House statement, not always, not always a speech being given from a podium. Exactly. The things that pe the public would see, which are formal speeches on TV, they're probably 3% of what the, the writers for a president do. And then there are statements. And every, every day, a normal president will do three or four statements that somebody has to prepare for, for him or her. So that is, is one part of it. So there's, there's just all the, the chaff that has to be produced. That, that is, that is the, the same. There's a particular way you can tell if somebody should be a speechwriter or not. And that way is whether it's easy for them. I find most real writing to be hard. Writing books is hard. Writing magazine articles is hard. Writing speeches should be easy because essentially you just start giving the speech to yourself in your head and write it down. And so there are, because it's spoken and it's just a different kind of cadence and coherence and ideal uh, unit and all the rest than, than in, in, in magazine or, or book writing. So everybody who worked in the office with me, I, I was the head of the office. There were five or six other people and they all had this trait of, yes, if you have to write a speech 10 minutes from now, you can do it. You have, if you have to write uh, a book, it'll be, it'll be hard to do. And it also involves a certain kind of ear, sort of an ear for mimicry, not the way you think something should be said, but how the person who's going to be delivering it would say it if he or she 
had the time to, you know, to, to, to reflect it, yeah. upon it. Yeah. So the tension for presidential speeches, there are two th- determiners that, that tell whether or not a president is going to be seen as a, a good speaker. One, and apart just from sort of natural gift of gab, one is whether they can learn the distinct skill of giving a formal address from a script, which essentially is like radio or TV announcing. It's different from speaking. It's a skill you have to learn. Ronald Reagan learned it not as an actor, but as a radio broadcaster. George W. Bush was bad at it and got good at it. Uh, Bill Clinton always used his improv mode and, and would vamp. Barack Obama was naturally uh, quite good at this. Interestingly, Trump was effective when essentially giving his stump speech rant, and it was terrible when he had to read something. It was like he was reading something in special English or something. He just didn't, <laughs> obviously had not seen the, the words before. So that, that is, is one determiner. The other is how powerful the speechwriters are relative to the policy people. You as a policy person, <laughs> I will say this with as much care as I can, the policy people need to have control over what the speech says, but they generally are bad at how the speech should say it. And the, the speech writers are usually there because they are writers and they have a, an ear. <laughs> and right. so it's, it, it's how much a president supports or doesn't support that eternal battle between the policy people and the writers for who is going to uh, say how a sentence should end or how long it should be or, or all of that. So or it's, what it's, metaphors or allusions to include to give it yes. some resonance. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. A didactic recounting of the elements of the policy is not, <laughs> is not an oration that's going to move anybody. <laughs> it, is, it is true. And, and, and I'll just, so Carter had his own distinctive ticks. He was actually quite an effective, impromptu and extemporaneous speaker. And that's why he became president. That I, these small gatherings all around the country of two or 300 people, people listened to him and thought, gee, this is great. Like Mayor Pete, the same kind of effect. And also like Obama, people thinking this guy is, is, is really has it. He was not good in large formal speeches, for example, on TV. And he had a very, he has a really, really distinctive idiolect and cadence that uh, we all had to learn, but it's, it, is, it is only his. He is a great man and has been by far the best former president ever. Absolutely so. Uh, so I'm also curious, that was all pre-computer, pre-internet kind of days <laughs> when you were, I guess this probably pertains more to the speeches than to drafts of releases and things, but how on earth did one do research and fact-checking in uh, those days? That is really interesting. So research, we could call in the White House <laughs> on the campaign. I won't say we just made it up, but there was kind of less. <laughs> you were living in real time. <laughs> and so, so, for example, the first thing I ever did, the, the most glamorous thing I did for Carter when I joined his campaign early in 76 was an article under his byline for the NRA magazine with the title, My First Kill. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> recollections of shooting a possum <laughs> in Georgia. And I was sort of making a lot of that up. And there was also kind of <laughs> latitude for in, in the campaign. In the White House, you could call on the Congressional Research Service. You could call on the policy offices. There were actual books. You, know, you had, you had uh, staff members in those times. So it was a matter of the, the pre-internet era of saying, can you find out what the unemployment rate was in 1933? And, and it was that, that kind of, of research. And then there was the, the actual mechanics of typing. 
there yes. where we all had to be good typers, but also there was a whole steno staff that was there to get the drafts, you know, going again and again and again. Yeah, and, and finding and correcting errors was a very mm -hmm. different enterprise back then than it is today on your word processor. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. Which leads me to an interesting aside. Because you became a writer in the pre-computer era and really made that your messier, your central central thrust of your life, you were in early on some of the development of software tools for writers. Those of us that are grateful for some of the features of our word processor today, in a sense, have some of your efforts to thank for it, I think. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I, I will come with one slight Oxbow deviation to, to the answer to that. So the Oxbow deviation is that when I first got a computer in my household, which was in the late 1970s, after I'd left Carter, started working for the Atlantic, and I had this little computer that I bought from a peanut warehouse in Ohio, where it had been used to run an electric eye sorting machine to throw out peanuts <laughs> that were too dark. And so I, I got it programmed with a writing- Obvious source program. for word processing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, a processor technology, Sol 20, with the, uh, the electric pencil writing program from a little place in Palm Springs. But the way that I was it was printed out was by an IBM Selectric computer. That was the printer. And what that was actually great about- Is that about the one that the, had the little ball that flew the little around? Ball. Yeah. Yes. You could change font by taking a like an inch and a <laughs> half diameter ball out. You could pop it out and spring a new one on to change the font. It is incredible that the, these existed, but it existed and it was, was the printer. And it would print things out line by line at about 100 words, words per minute or normal reading aloud rate. And so I would actually write articles being printed out and say them to myself as I was seeing them printed out, which really is a good way to see the rhythm of a sentence. Because usually a sentence that you can say aloud will also read on the page better. You know, that, that sounds okay when read aloud will read on the page better too. And so yeah. a matter of where the stress falls and all that. So the IBM Selectric was a way that I sort of built in the habit of reading them, them aloud. Um, my service to the larger universe of um, computer users is for various reasons, mainly that I've been canned from an editing job. In <laughs> 1999, I spent six, six months working at Microsoft and two years in Seattle, essentially as a part of the Word design team there. And the things I had the biggest influence on were the track changes feature, which uh, I use all the time, and getting rid of Microsoft Clippy. Hey, it seems like you're writing a letter. Oh, I hated him. <laughs> I hated him. So it's that, a wonder was... I didn't break some computer screens. <laughs> You know, and the, you know, the, the obvious problem with Clippy is it was useful the first two times you saw it and the next 9 million times it was an annoyance, but it had been designed by Bill Gates's wife, Lin Melinda, before they were married. And so it had a kind of halo protecting it. So only somebody from outside could say, hey, this is terrible. Get rid of it. <laughs> but it was fun Bless to you, do. my son. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other little digression, because it would come a thread for... Uh, your most recent book that we want to get to. How did you pick up flying? When when did that come about? Remind me how early in your life you began flying, which I think is very early. Right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, my father trained to be a bomber pilot in the Second World War on the tail end of things, so never ended up overseas in the fight and ended his service with us 
sort of flying ticket that could be converted to a civilian license with not too much effort. Uh, he did not do that until we had moved to Southern California. We came out in 1958. And he fell in with a group of friends at work who liked to go fishing in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Uh, and that company happened to have a flying club, sort of time-sharing a set of airplanes from a little two-seater that could just go do practice hops to five or six-seaters that could actually get somewhere. And so my father reactivated his flying license. You could get to better fishing grounds faster in a Cessna than in a car. My brother was also from the earliest age, I can remember, obsessed with airplanes and flying. And so this was also a way to make a, a family pastime a boost to my, my brother's career aspirations. So we started flying, each taking our turn flying with dad in the little two-seat trainers around when I was 13, I would say. Well, you have flown in many, many venues <laughs> since since then. And so I, I, I would love to have had that flying background. Mine was, I've always been interested in, in, in airplanes. And when I was in Boy Scouts and Explorers in Redlands, I'd go for um, you know trial flights at Norton Air Force Base, which they were offering. In my very first week in college, back when I had no idea what college was would be would be like, I went out for a you know free first trial flight at Hanscom Field outside Boston uh, in in a little Cessna. I think it was a 152. So I thought, well, gee, this is something I can take up. But then reality in the form of absolutely no time. Weather, time, and money. Yes, exactly. Weather, time, and money meant that uh, I guess the, the I had rides in friends' airplanes often. In 1981, I wrote a book called National Defense, which included a long sort of discourse on why the F-15 became so much heavier and less maneuverable than it could have been, and why the F-16 was better, et cetera, et cetera. And the then head of tactical air command, uh, General Creech, sent me a really angry note saying, you think the F-15 is so clumsy? Wise guy, we'll show you. So they took me down to not Langley Airfield, whatever it is, you know, Oceana Langley. Airfield, yeah. Langley. And I had a, I was in the rear seat for a two hour mock combat drill on an F-15, <laughs> you know, with his endless five and six G turns intended to make me throw up as it promptly did, of course. <laughs> yes. But then finally, uh, in when I was in, I guess when I was in my mid 40s, finally, we felt as if we had enough time and money for me actually to to get a certificate in the training. So I did. I got an instrument training rating right away. I didn't take anybody with me until I was instrument rated. We didn't own a plane until the Cirruses came on the market in 2000. I got one of the very first ones off the assembly line because of the parachute for the Cirrus. And so we've we've owned a Cirrus more or less all the time since then. So for those who are not airplane crazy like you and I, tell me a little more about the Cirrus. How fast can it go and what is, why does an airplane have a parachute again? The, the story of the Cirrus in brief is there are two brothers uh, from Baraboo, Wisconsin, the Klapmeyer brothers, whom I think of sort of as the Wright brothers almost a century later. They both had been um, avid flyers from their youth. They came from an entrepreneurial family. I think their family made fiberglass boats or something. And they decided, well, let's just start an airplane company. And Alan Klapmeyer, when he was a teenager, almost died in a midair collision. He was on a training flight in some small field in Illinois or Wisconsin. And there was a collision, I believe, with a crop duster. 
right nearing the runway, as happened with crop dusters, as you well know. They just kind of zoom right in. And so um, Alan managed to land the plane, but felt as if he might well have been killed. And so he thought, well, when my brother Dale and I start our airplane company, we'll make sure there are parachutes for the airplane. So there's an answer if you're in a midair collision and you think you're going to die. And so to skip ahead, they they had they did all kinds of training and they launched this company in 2000 called the Cirrus Design Corporation. Cirrus, Cirrus, like the kind of cloud, right? Yes, a C I R R U S, and and they're all fiberglass. They're very elegant. The idea would be they wouldn't like be these sort of clunker cars in the 1950s, but they would look like a nice car now. And it had a built-in ballistic parachute for the plane as a whole. And they they tested it and uh, so. This was very controversial in the piloting world at the time, saying, oh, this is like training wheels. A real man, so to speak, would land a plane, et cetera. You don't need this. It'll make you a lazy pilot. I think the there's now been, in the last 21 years, there are about 8,000 of these planes that exist. There have been right around 100 parachute pulls, people who were engine failure over the mountains in the night or whatever. Every person has survived who has pulled the parachute. So which is a, a, a huge, huge comfort. Yeah, and how fast can it go? Uh, my cruising speed on lean peak engine power is 165 knots, or let's say 180 miles an hour or so. So it is a lot slower than a commercial jet, but it is a lot more flexible and a lot more fun. And it, you know, it's not pressurized. I, Deb and I like to fly at two or 3,000 feet above ground level, just because you can see things so beautifully depending on the terrain, we do different altitudes, et cetera. But it's a way that from our home in DC, we can easily go to the middle of Maine, to Indiana, to the middle of Florida. That's all sort of a, a one tank trip. One tank trip, right. So I three times faster than your car in a straight line and never stuck mm. behind a slow truck is kind <laughs> of the way I think about that. Yes. Well, let's pivot back to some of your other fascinating experiences and, and your writing. You also lived, I think it was four years in, in Asia. Tell us about how that came about and where you were and what your assignments, what were you working on? So these were all in my time with the Atlantic, which has been most of the time since I left Jimmy Carter, except for my years <laughs> at Microsoft, et cetera. And, and there were actually two chunks of that duration. One was in the mid 1980s. This is when our kids were in elementary school era. We'd been living again in Texas for a little while. I've been doing some uh, work for the Atlantic, mainly on politics. I've been writing about Ronald Reagan and tax cuts and all sorts of things. And we just thought we wanted to get out of DC. Why don't we move to Japan? So- I mean, why Japan? Did this fit into Deb's linguistic interests or? I think it was was because- Threw a dart at the map? <laughs> it, was, it was largely, and there was an even more dart on the map sequel where where Japan at the moment was in its you know renaissance mode and what is, is going on in Japan. I've been doing some reporting in Detroit. And so I thought also this would be the other part of, of the industrial picture. Also this was so this was I would be then in my I was in my mid mid late 30s then and I thought I'm either going to stay in Washington forever or not stay in Washington forever. So this would be a chance to get on a different path. So we thought we were going to do a six-month fellowship with the Japan Society just in Tokyo. And we did go there for those six months. Our kids were then, you know, in elementary school. They were, I think, in kindergarten and third grade then. So we traveled around with them, and it was very interesting. But then we thought, 
this we should keep doing this and so we we thought the next the way we could stay for some time was to actually throw a dart on the map and live in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia we did for the next two plus years which is a was then a wonderful town it was great for me to travel all around Southeast Asia it was much less expensive than Japan was now our kids went to an international school it was great those were sort of years of paradise then we thought we need to give Japan another try. So we went back for another year in Japan and we put our kids in Japanese public school, which um, wow. was probably a mistake. It was character building. So they're in like third-ish grade now? Uh, yes, they were, in, they were in third and sixth grade then. And so for the older one, that's the stage in Japanese public schools where the kids all wear the Prussian uniforms and uh, where there had never before been a non-Japanese student in the public school where our kids went uh, outside Tokyo. They both, of course, had to learn Japanese. One of them has kept it up to that day. The other one has not spoken a syllable of Japanese since the day he <laughs> left, just because the feeling of the every second awareness of being an outsider, a gaijin, a, a different, was, was really something. Then we came back to Washington for a while. Then eventually moved to Seattle and Berkeley, and we came back to Washington. Then we moved to China again, uh, just for the same going where action is and getting out of D.C. from 2006 off and on until 2011. So just that one little bit of context, yeah. your stints in Japan and Kuala Lumpur, that was the era of the Asian tigers, really vibrant, surging Asian economies and, and some real angst in the United States, because our economy was more stagnant, not as vibrant. And there was really a concern about, are we being eclipsed? Will the future be Japanese? Will the future be Asian? So I'm fascinated by your time in China, your more recent stint in China, because of all of the rhetoric and all the geopolitical tensions around China today. So I'm curious what your take is about all of that, China and its, its vibrancy, its resurgence, its bold visions for the future. It's sort of a bluster of, of recent events surrounding the Chinese Communist Party's centenary. And the bigger, or the other question, or the companion question, I guess, is the way to say it, of how the US appears to be approaching China or should approach China in the next decade. And those are all great and, and enormous questions. Let me first talk about a connection in, in angst, as you were mentioning, because there is a similarity. And after I lived in Japan, I wrote a book about this question of sort of the US and Japan, how they uh, matched up to each other. And the title of the book was More Like Us. And the argument was many people think that the way to deal with Japan, recognize its successes, is to become more like them, more regimented and more whatever you wanted to derive from the Japanese experience. And I said, no, on, on the contrary, the lesson Americans should take is that we need to be more like us by which I meant open and mobile and deliberately inclusive and conscious of all the barriers that can keep America falling short of its potential as a place where people from around the world can realize their ambitions, et cetera. The subtitle of that book, by the way, was Making America Great Again. Uh, just... <laughs> Is that where it came from? <laughs> I, think it, I think Ronald Reagan had said it before that, but that, was, uh, <laughs> that has given me a little wince whenever I see recent years. So I think there's, as a, as a recommendation to the U.S., I would have something similar for China, that it's very important to take China seriously, but the, the response is to do things that the U.S. should probably do if China didn't exist, 
or if Japan didn't exist, whether it's infrastructure or more opportunities for people from groups that have been excluded or more things that just can realize our potential and blah, 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 you know, that, that, that becoming more like us, more American is the way to deal with the Chinese challenge. I'll say two things about, about a contrast between being in Japan and being in China. I found being in Japan increasingly difficult as time went on because of the weight of being the other. You know, just, and I wrote, actually wrote, a, I did an essay on NPR about how I thought every white American, especially every white man, should have to live in sort of interior Japan for a year and just see what it's like to have your race be the most important thing about you every second of the day. You know, as a white American, I can say, quote, race doesn't matter in my daily life and most of America to me. In Japan, it was the only thing that, that, that mattered. How did that manifest itself? So if I'm walking on a street at night and there's a, a Japanese woman approaching me, she'd cross the other side of the street. She'd also hold her purse a little closer. On the subways, the seat that would be empty would be next to us. At the schools in Japanese public school, uh, they say, oh, your, your son is well-behaved for, for a foreigner. Your son is, uh, speaks good Japanese. He's articulate you know, for, for a foreigner. And, and it was just that sense of, uh, and I think one reason why Japan's population will be half as large in the middle of this coming century as it was in the last century is because immigrants are just an, an impossible thing to, to absorb, even if they're ethnically Japanese. Um, we would see at the train station sometime on our commuting train, ethnically Japanese people from Venezuela or Brazil who would come back to Japan. And you could tell from how they moved that they were South Americans. <laughs> and, and the Japanese people could tell they were South Americans too. So I think it was the tribalism of Japan is its strength and its fragility. And in China, it's more like just a big carnival mess, you know, riot, Bruegel painting, everybody's doing everything and they're sort of too busy to notice you. Of course, there's racial consciousness in there as, as a river every place, but they're sort of too busy to think was my sense. And so I think most Americans find China for all of its problems more comfortable than Japan, except for those who really, really, really like Japan. And Japan's, its aesthetics are unmatched, its efficiency is unmatched, et cetera, et cetera. So the challenge I think in dealing with China in brief is taking it seriously without either being afraid of it or needlessly provoking it. You know, not afraid of it because they have more problems than we do. And, and four times as many people with a per capita income still like one third as large or so, or a quarter as large. They have every problem the US has, they have more of, except maybe the US Senate. They, uh, <laughs> and, they and, and not needlessly provoking it is they have their own politics too. And if the US is constantly insulting them and sort of saber rattling over Taiwan, that's, that is gonna have consequences. So taking them seriously, being tough on them without making things worse is the real challenge for our policy, I think. So you wrote a book in, that came out in 2013 called China Airborne, The Test of China's Future. <laughs> and that title triggers two questions for me. One is, what was it like to fly a small airplane in China? And secondly, what did you determine, what did you conclude is the test of its future? 
the main moral of the experience of flying a small airplane in China is I survived. <laughs> this was, the, big, the big takeaway is Jim and Deb came back. <laughs> yeah. And oh my God, I will send you um, after we are done a picture that to me epitomizes a Japan versus China difference. And also the why it was notable that I survived, which was I did fly this little Cirrus airplane with a friend around Southeast Asia. And there's one photo of the plane being refueled in Japan. And you have two ramp attendants wearing matching uniforms and they have matching helmets and they have uh, they have masks on for no particular reason, just because it's good practice. And they have a little protective cuff around the fuel vent of the plane They're, and everything about it is is in precision and they're filling up the plane. The plane is being fueled in China. There is a pickup truck with a barrel of old av gas in the back of it. And there's somebody who's siphoning the av gas, (laughs) sucking it out and then plugging it into the plane. And that is sort of the way there is in Japan, there is the way of doing things. In China, there is there is any way you want. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's I I describe in the book sort of the one time I was a I was one of a relatively more experienced Cirrus pilot in China when I first got there. So I was co-piloting a a ferry flight from central China down to Zhuhai for the air show. And we were refueled with siphon gas from an old MiG fighter. Uh, The uh, the air traffic controller would not speak to us in English and they wouldn't give us higher altitude going through the uh, over the airports and uh, the mountains of China. The guy running the instrument landing system in Zhuhai went out for a beer and sort of turned <laughs> off the beacon. And so it was it was really something. But so I thought they have a ways to go. The test of China's future is I was saying there are certain kind of marker species, if you will, industrially, biotech, infotech, advanced research universities and aerospace where if a society can accomplish those, it means they've done a whole lot of other things too. And so I was saying, let's look at China's aerospace industry. I was saying, I think they're going to have troubles. This is not like just having supply chain for, for parts. And indeed they've, they've had troubles and I think will for a while. Interesting. We're gonna make our way to our towns, I promise. But there's one other event happening in the news as as we record this that makes me connect to a piece that you wrote in 2002. Uh, And some of what you wrote in that piece reminded me of my glimpses and sensations at the time. Title of the piece is The 51st State. And you basically, in that piece, issue a warning about the implications of a preemptive attack in response to the September 11th attacks. Uh, the road that the United States might find itself going down if we indeed go into Iraq. And it seems timely to ask you to reflect on that piece now with the troop adjustments that have just been announced this week. The longest war in the country's history, the first large war since the Spanish-American War that we went into with few or no allies. How do you think about this now, 20 Uh, years later? Thank you for for remembering that. I, I guess the way I would think of it is, obviously, the Civil War was the most destructive and catastrophic in U.S. history for reasons that are obvious. The Vietnam War was probably the most harmful, sustained mistake over, but over a period of decades, literally. And it was a it was a domino process, if you will where each day people were making decisions that seemed to have some logical justification from the day before. 
and there was no one big moment when somebody told LBJ, okay, uh, well, or told John F. Kennedy, yeah, we're going to, you're going to choose now to have half a million troops there over the next decade. It was salami slicing. Uh, it was the, the mythical boiled frog right. <laughs> metaphor. Whereas invading Iraq was a deliberate decision. And therefore, I think I would argue it was the worst decision in American governing history. Dealing with the pandemic was the worst governance failure. The decision to invade Iraq, the decision to use the attack on 9-11 as the pretext to invade Iraq was the most harmful single decision. In retrospect, but also many people, including me, said at the time, the proper focus in the fall of 2011 is all-out retribution against Osama bin Laden, the Taliban, their strongholds in Afghanistan, go there, blow them up, eliminate them. This is a punitive mission, punish and leave. This has nothing to do with Iraq. But I can tell you that on the afternoon of the 9-11 attacks, I was talking with some friends in the Pentagon who were saying, we're gonna go to the source, which, which is Iraq. You know, there had been, there was sort of a spring-loaded impulse of we really have to deal with Saddam Hussein after the first Gulf War, et cetera. Bush, George W. Bush made the fateful decision to go along with the people who are recommending that. And then the worst decision, uh, largely driven by Rumsfeld and Cheney, not to do it properly. You know, if you're going to invade Iraq, it's a bad choice, but at least don't make it even worse, which was essentially the point of that article, that if you're going to do this, here is the next decade's worth of consequences to be prepared for, starting with not disbanding the Iraqi army. So this has been a traumatic for for those countries and for us. You, you make the point very well in that piece, I think, that how we underestimate our vulnerabilities when we're facing a, a stateless foe that doesn't have a force that we can analyze through the lens that we normally analyze. And the line that I took away from that article is military action is a barbed hook. There is no quick release. You're going to end up in it for the long haul. Yes. And um, as 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 Colin Powell in his previous life about Vietnam had said, and in his life starting in maybe 2006, 2007 said, but crucially, he did not say that in 2002, 2003. You're right. To his regret now. Yes. Uh, and we also fail to imagine the whole chain of events that military, that a war or military action can trigger. Your small perturbation in a complex system can have outsized effects that defy your imagination. Exactly, which is whenever Iran comes into the crosshairs, I think is a point that is crucial to keep making. So your most recent book, which I, I've not quite finished, I have to confess, it's very long. <laughs> it's not very <laughs> but it long. It includes Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> it's quite digestible. And I think you've got your finger very well on the pulse of my hometown. But tell me how that project came about. It's called Our Towns, by the way. And it's you and Deb in your Cirrus over a course of, I think it's four years, visiting 13 cities that people would call tier two cities, I guess, the not the fancy name places, most of them in flyover country. How did it come about? So it, it came about, I think, for sort of push-pull reasons. The push part is a pattern in my life is whenever we're, we're in D.C. where You want to get kids, out. <laughs> yes. You know, we have a beautiful house here where I'm speaking to you from. Our kids were both born here and both finished high school here. We have many, many friends here, et cetera, et cetera. It's where I vote now and pay taxes without representation. 
but there is a DC <laughs> journalistic culture that every couple of years we just feel sort of expelled from. We need to see the outside world. So we've been back from China for a couple of years. Deb had written her wonderful book, Dreaming in Chinese, based on her linguistics expertise. I'd written a couple of books on China. I was getting back into sort of the political grinder again. So we thought, let's do something else. The pull was, in our years of flying the little airplane around the country, we'd seen so many places we would not have been other places. You know, Red Oak, Iowa, Rock Springs, Wyoming, or, you know, you name Guymon, Oklahoma. Uh, and we thought, what would it be like to view these not the way journalism normally does, which is going there, going to a diner and saying, do you like Trump? But saying, what's the story here? Are people moving in? Or are they moving out? What's, how, what, what's changing, et cetera? So we started doing that with the idea it would be a two or three month venture, you know, sort of one summer. And we ended up being first so surprised by all the things we are seeing, starting with Sioux Falls, South Dakota being a major refugee resettlement site. And the ways in which the city was dealing with all this Somali and Congolese and Butanese presence in its midst, which is in a quite positive way, I would argue, and all the high-tech things there, and just expanding it. As time went on, we ended up going to some places that were sort of edge cases, like your own current hometown of Columbus, by far the biggest city we went to, to see, could small town principals operate in what's objectively quite a large town? And the argument was, yes, Columbus pretty much does. 15th largest city, which yep. no one tends to think of. It's really quite a metropolis. <laughs> Normally, people cover it in the national press for Ohio State football game, for Ohio State issues, or for Ohio political issues. And exactly. basically, not you know what, what Columbus is like. And we went to some more and more troubled places, Erie, PA, San Bernardino, California, Fresno, California, uh, and West Virginia, to see... If the theme we were making, which is there's a lot more resilience city by city than is noticed nationally, uh, whether that that held even in hard pressed places, and we were con contending that it did. Well, I found it's a very hopeful book because so much of what our daily media diet is focuses on the hard things, the bad things, the broken things, the, the progress that's not being made, often at the national level, and and every one of these towns, as you point out. There's, a, I think you call it a local patriotism. In fact, one thing that's struck me in the portions of it that I've gotten through so far, about halfway through, is regardless of the political tinge of the town you're in, the stridency you might expect would be on the surface and first thing that you might hit as a reporter from mainstream media, and the, like never surfaces. It never comes up. You, you end up in conversations yes. with real people that are working together across business, community, nonprofit, and, and racial and ethnic lines to make their community a better place. And the stuff that stalls us at the national level, it's, it's almost like it doesn't exist. It's amazing. Yes, and, and, th and thank you for, for noticing that. And it, it's not, of course, that people don't know about national politics, nor is it that national political divisions don't matter, because of course they do. And having a functional versus non-functional national government matters, and it's important to address ways that it become more, more functional. But the point is that in, our, our, in most people's sense of the country derived from national media, you would think those issues are 90% of what's going on, as opposed to 10% or less. And what, what is important, and I'd stress sophisticated and most striking about most of these communities is the ways they're thinking about everything else. 
what will it take to attract new people to the town? What is the story of the town? And I stress the, the um, sophistication of it because my contention is if you ask anybody about national politics, almost everybody sounds dumb. There's a very, there's only about five or 10 sentences anybody can say, and they're all, you've heard them all. And national reporters shouldn't ask those things, both because the results are, are unenlightening and because it puts the national reporter in the expert position. I'm here from Washington coming to Sioux Falls. What do you think about the Congress? As opposed to, I'm here to learn from you about what's happening in Sioux Falls and how you revive this downtown. And people are sophisticated about the worlds they, they live in. And so it puts you in the position of learning from the person who actually has thought about these things. And, and, and to me, that's a more comfortable and informative position to be in. I mean, you've captured so much that I love about living in a city like this. One is that it's a big city that Columbus is, 15th in the country. It's still got culture and operating patterns that make it more intimately connected. And I think this is spot on. There are not many places in this country that have this secret sauce of Columbus, big enough, big enough to tackle anything, but small enough to actually get it done, which is just a brilliant capture of the dynamic that makes these places thrive in the way they do. So you close the book with 10 and a half signs, <laughs> 10 and a half signs of civic success, all of which were you know, very insightful. But the ones I particularly love, I mean, some are kind of a bit obvious. They're near a research university and they have a community college that, that people care about, that it's not seen as the dumb kids school. It's seen as a really important creative engine for the town. But what I particularly loved was they have distinctive, innovative schools. They have big plans. And the one that should make everybody chuckle, uh, they have a brew pub. You guys spent <laughs> a lot of time in brew pubs writing this book. How do, what is the thing with brew pubs? So partly it's that I, I like I like modern American beer. You know, America is now <laughs> in its golden age of, of beer. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'll say something about they have big plans. Columbus, Ohio has a hundred year plan, as you may know. That's something I really respect, you know, and in a way that's preposterous, but also the hundred years are going to come. And so you might as well be thinking, thinking about them. Here's my case for craft beer. Number one, Jim Cook, who was one of the pioneers of the American craft brewing industry. He's from Cincinnati originally, the founder of Sam Adams Beer, Boston Brew Pub, you know, spelled K-O-C-H, uh, Jim Cook. He says that that beer is a really important proxy for local manufacturing in the United States. That back in the 1800s, basically every single town had its own brewery because there was no refrigeration. You had to make it on site if you wanted to have it and people wanted it. So there were breweries all over the place. Prohibition killed that off, of course. Then after, by the 1950s, there were only about 20 breweries in the entire country. There were Anheuser-Busch and a few others, and that, and that was it. And then in the 1970s, a man named Jimmy Carter put out an executive order written with great elegance by one of the staff members. Someone <laughs> named Fallows, I think, if I recall which, correctly. Which, which uh, <laughs> was to, to deregulate home brewing. And that is when things became possible because, because it was unlawful. You know, you could be arrested by the feds, by the ATF Bureau, if you were brewing in your house. And so suddenly there was a craft brewing renaissance, which led to, um, you know, Sam Adams was an early one. There was New Albion in California. Sierra Nevada was also early. And now over the last decade, essentially the number of breweries has gone from fewer than 100 back in the battle days to like five or 6,000 now. 
And essentially, it's a market. It's something that people, you know, think of as as an industry. It employs hundreds of thousands of people at wages above the manufacturing level median. It's classified as manufacturing, just so you'll know. And while it, there are things you can make fun of in the craft brew hipster uh, movement, it's been a way. Also, it's it's a it's a gathering point. You know, in many places we've seen where craft breweries sort of pioneer new neighborhoods. There are rooms for the children with appropriate law, <laughs> you know, regulations for, for who's drinking when or whatever. So it's one more way that, that bowling leagues may be on the decline, as Robert Putnam said, but there's this sort of, um, there are at least as many, there are more breweries now than there were bowling leagues before. I love it. So Our Towns has also, besides being a book, has become an HBO documentary and has also given rise to a foundation. And I'm curious what your sense is of what are the changes, what are the losses, what are the gains, the benefits of book to documentary? You probably lose some creative control as it goes to somebody like HBO to make a documentary. Uh, And then where did the idea for a foundation come from and what's the hope and purpose there? So the movie, Deb and I consider ourselves unbelievably fortunate. We're unbelievably fortunate in sort of the, you've been unbelievably fortunate in a number of these these historic and daring ventures you have done in a much more modest way. You know, in the sort of making books into films pyramid, there's like 10,000 offers and 1,000 meetings and 100 deals are put into development for each one film that actually was produced. So just before our book was published in hardcover in 2018, Richard Plepler, who was then the head of HBO, called and said he'd read the book in galleys. He'd really like to make a, a movie of this. Would we be interested? So we talked with them. And by a miracle, it actually happened. They paired us with a brilliant husband and wife filmmaking team about our contemporaries, Steve Asher and Jeannie Jordan, who are based in Boston. Jeannie's originally from a farm in Iowa. Steve is from, from New York, but they're highly uh, recognized filmmakers, Oscar nominated. And Deb and I had no idea whatsoever to of what to expect. We first saw the footage of what they put together after a hundred days of filming on the road with them in 2019, just before the pandemic. We thought we had no idea what this, what this should be, but this is it. You know, they they it is such brilliant filmmaking, and they can capture in two seconds on screen a look, a scene. Uh, an expression, an exchange that we would have labored for two pages to to bring bring out. It has drone photography that I think you as a lifelong aviator will find um, spellbinding. It, it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. It's, it's on HBO Max now. HBO Max has a month-long free trial offer to all <laughs> users, something I just mentioned as an aside. Hint, hint, hint <laughs> wink, nod. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it, it's a beautiful movie, and, and we, we feel so fortunate. It, it's, it's filmed in six places that we went, and it ends, uh, it's filmed on Native American reservations and in really hard-pressed parts of San Bernardino and in the Black Belt of Mississippi and on coastal Maine, and it's just, it's so beautiful, and we, we, we feel so fortunate apart from our role as the on-air talent, we sort of walk in and out and work, but it's mainly just filming people doing things, the story of their towns. So our foundation arose from this. It's called the Our Towns. Uh, If you go to ourtownsfoundation.org, there's our site. It's based on this realization of a journalistic failure and opportunity. 
the journalistic failure is the way most people in our business portray the part of America that's not Capitol Hill, not the White House, not Hollywood, and not downtown San Francisco. You know, and everything else is sort of, it's portrayed as being two-dimensional. It's red state or blue state. And it's an object of what happens someplace else. And it's just a scene for who you're going to vote for for Senate. And what do you think about Christy Nome or, you know, name, name, name your person or J.D. Vance even. As opposed, so journalism has failed to give, you know, a three-dimensional picture of our world. So that's something we're, we, we think as a journalistic effort, we'd like to try to help continuing to correct. The journalistic opportunity is we realize in our travels how many people are already doing things around the country that are part of what could be a new age of reform. That if they are connected, this could be like the good parts of the 1910s and 20s following the original Gilded Age, not the bad parts, not Jim Crow, not the rise of the Klan, but the uh, Jane Addams and the League of Women Voters and lots of other things, the good government movement that happened then. So the opportunity is there's more of this happening than is described or written about or connected or learned from. And that's what we'd like to keep doing. So we're having a site where we're featuring reporting from around the country. We're trying to do more of it ourselves. We're trying to have best practices and all that, mainly to be connectors for people who, without knowing it, are part of a movement. Well, I love that idea. I mean, you do get a much more, as an American, I felt like I was getting a more three-dimensional sense of the country that I actually live in because these scenes and these stories from these 13 towns remind me that we're not just the, the back and forth. We're not just the competitive metaphor, you know, thrill of victory, agony of defeat, sort of the framing lens for every national story, who won, who lost, what's the score. And that's not actually what life in this country is. Yes. And I think everybody, people know that about their own communities or families or organizations, but they're not sure whether that's true elsewhere. And so our sense is it's true more broadly than we might might fear. So amid the politics of our time and against the backdrop of your Our Towns experience, where is your needle right now in terms of the future <laughs> of our country? If, if, if zero is dead set pessimistic and 10 is completely optimistic, What's your current setting? It certainly is in the optimistic half of the dial. And here's, here's why I, I say this. It seems to me that at any decade of the country's history, there's been some emergency, often pretty terrible ones, like the Civil War or the Great Depression or World War II or the Korean War and McCarthyism. And there's there's been something bad happening pretty much anytime you, you choose. And so the question is always the vector diagram offset, how that emergency factor is balanced to the things, the positive impulses being stimulated by it. And I think there are lots of signs of more positive responses now than a couple of, of, of years, years ago, that the, the United States seems to be finding ways to grapple with the damage of the pandemic. Most of all, economically, it seems to have you know, recovered more economically than, than it is in terms of, of the lives lost and other things. But also there are signs that in the structure of the economy, there may start to be, be some recovery and balance. Over the past two decades, the economy is becoming more and more unfair and extreme and polarized. 
and there's some signs in terms of labor shortage and rising wages and people deciding what their working life is going to be that you know even though those imbalances were were intensified during the lockdown itself maybe post lockdown there's ways in which they will be offset and have some federal efforts there seems to be some uh, certainly one of the phases of racial reckoning and reconciliation. I think this may be like the mid-60s as opposed to the late 60s and thinking there are ways in which police use of force against Black people and opportunities in general, there is a, a chance to, to uh, redress those. Obviously, there are countervailing forces on all the, these levels. And I think an important reason to stress the local recovery is so that the poison of national polarization doesn't infect and seep down to what is happening state by state and region by region. Some of that is going on. Some of the seeping down and poison, I think, needs to be rebuffed. So I think there are more positive potential signs now than there are negative ones. And I hope that that is what people will think as when they look back 10 years from now on the United States of the early 2020s. Well, from your lips to God's ears, as the <laughs> saying goes, I hope that it becomes so. Jim, it's, uh, we could go on for another hour, I'm sure. There are countless other pieces you've written. I'd love to learn more about the backstory and uh, many more topics and interests we share in common. But let me thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your experiences with us. It's been great exploring the world with you. Kathy, it's a tremendous honor simply to be on any program with you and, and, and your podcast, but especially it, it's, it's touching and an honor to have such um, carefully thought through um, line of questionings and carefully um, you know, prepared uh, subjects to discuss. You know, that, that, that is, uh, I, am, I am, again, more honored than you can know to think that, that you have been uh, in, engaging with, <laughs> with, with the things I've been cranking out over the years in that way. So, so thank you personally and for your public in this, this program and your global public for the role you've had over the decades in your adventuring and scientific and policy work. Thank you, Jim. Let's plan on more conversations. Let's do this again. You, you will need to come on. We'll start a podcast and we'll have you on to tell us what we should do. All right. There you go. <laughs> Shane Fallow, so great to talk with you. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space. <laughs>